Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 166 for the 25th of September, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski coming to you from Bozeman, Montana this week. Hello, Doc. How are you today? I'm great, Chester. I guess you're, well, not exactly in the middle of the country, but you're at least sort of continentally bound, having been uh, zooming from coast to coast lately. You're in Vancouver, then you're in LA, then you're in Boston, then you're in Seattle. Yeah, I think you even missed Dallas. I was in Dallas in there in the middle. Of course you were. But I, I guess at least in Montana, I'm now between the Rocky Mountains and the Mississippi River, so I'm sort of central. Of course, everybody's talking about the story that's been making news everywhere on the internets this week, which is more Home Depot. Um, I, I guess since the last time we podcast, it's been disclosed that there were 56 million plus credit cards leaked, so that's uh, nearly 50% more than Target, I guess. Yes, you're right. That would be your target was 40 million over a period of about 20 days. And uh, Home Depot's breach lasted about 165 days. And uh, as you say, they managed to they managed to lose track of 56 million cards. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I was a little surprised. There was a story today in the Wall Street Journal going, wow, these cards are starting to be used to purchase groceries and gift cards and da 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 da. And I'm like, what do you mean starting to be used? I mean, ultimately, that's how Home Depot discovered the breach to begin with was the credit card companies putting two and two together and figuring out that all this card fraud they were experiencing, ch you know, chased back to people that had purchased things at Home Depot. So uh, it's not exactly surprising that the fraud is increasing because as we know from previous experiences with stolen cards, once the cat's out of the bag, the criminals kind of rush to use them as quickly as they can because they know the banks are going to figure out whose cards have been compromised, and, and reissue them. As last week when we were talking about Target winning our, you know, epic security fail of the past year, this kind of thing is, is one where you as a consumer can't really do anything to bolster your own security before the fact. It's not like you can install an antivirus, pick a good Wi-Fi password, do all of those great things. Um, you're sort of trusting your merchant. And uh, when something like this happens, you don't really have a lot more you can do except to watch those statements. Well, I think there's one other thing that we should warn folks about. Uh, we know a lot of debit cards were stolen, and one of the things that was pointed out um, when the announcement was made is that, oh, pin pads weren't compromised, they didn't steal pins. Turns out they don't need to steal pins. Um, a lot of banks in the United States allow knowledge-based authentication to be used over the telephone to reset a PIN, things like, please enter the last four digits of your social security number, please enter the, your birth year, this type of thing where you can enter it on the phone keypad and then uh, authorize a PIN change. The crooks have figured this out and have been resetting some people's PINs and making debit account charges. Please, to the world at large, can we get away from what we might call authentication which is based on information that is at the very, very best pseudo-public. You know, like your birthday, your mother's maiden name, things that you can never, ever change. And in many jurisdictions, when you open a bank account, you have no choice but to tell the truth. It's a legal requirement. If you lie about your birthday, then it could turn out bad for you down the line because it would look as though you'd opened the bank account in a dodgy fashion terribly bad idea. Why did we ever get stuck on this idea of birthday as an identifier? Yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of things that we've carried over from what you might call the brick and mortar days. Last Friday, I was in Boston, 
and I thought I might wander over to the Apple Store to see what kind of craziness might be happening around the hype surrounding the launch of the new iPhone 6 and iPhone 6 Plus. Did you take your tent and your sleeping bag and a little camping stove? No, I have good sense in that I uh, went over about 10 o'clock in the morning just to observe what was happening rather than get too terribly involved. Oh, that's what they all say, Chester. But, but interestingly, you know, the hype around the iPhone obviously is a huge draw. We had people lined up at Apple stores and, and mobile phone retailers around the world waiting to get these devices. And we always see scams popping up. And it looks like eBay was hit this week with some sort of a cross-site scripting attack related to uh, iPhone hysteria. Uh, can you tell us more? Yes, my understanding is this is quite simple. It's that, that eBay has found that its sellers like to be able to jazz up their listings by including a bit of JavaScript or Flash. So it's almost like inviting a bit of cross-site scripting. Because to me, the idea of letting a third party embed JavaScript in HTML content that's then pushed out on your website, that's a little bit like having an email client that allows JavaScript by default. Email clients haven't been doing that for, what, a decade or more? Because emails just come in from everywhere. Yeah, if they, if they like the idea of people being able to jazz up their listings, they should figure out what the popular requests are and maybe turn those into some sort of tags that can be proxies for the JavaScript where they can control the code that gets embedded instead of letting it be arbitrary embedded JavaScript, which is much, much higher risk. It's easy for me to say, hey, ban the JavaScript, and that's exactly what I would do. But if it really is a thing that's helping people sell more product and generate more revenue for eBay, they, there must be alternatives that they could implement that eliminate the risk. You know, we do like to have silver linings, don't we, on the Chet Chat. The nice thing about this story is that the uproar happened because apparently in one case, eBay took something like 12 hours to remove the offending JavaScript. And, you know, if I think back maybe even two or three years, uh, contacting people who've got compromised websites, to get something fixed within 12 hours back then, you would have been cheering, you know, you'd go and have a street party if it were that easy. So in a way, the fact that we're now getting anxious because there's a problem that took a whole half day to sort out, maybe that's the good side of the equation. You know, we are collectively realizing that response times do need to be quicker. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so for response times, I mean, back to Apple, since we're talking about the iPhone, iOS 8, of course, was uh, released, I believe, a day or two before the new iPhone itself, right after the last chat chat. Lots of security fixes, right? I mean, this isn't one that you should really ignore. I mean, it, it isn't something that you necessarily want to rush into, but like previous Apple updates, when they went to a major version of the operating system, they did a lot of cleanup on the security front, it sounds like. Yes, make no mistake, when you go to uh, the Apple download pages, the iOS update was absolutely unequivocally pitched as hundreds of new features. And when you go in, there are loads of them. There's new stuff in Siri, there's new stuff in iCloud, there's new stuff in the camera, there's new stuff in the health app. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, so you might want to get it just for the features. But even if you don't, when you dig into the security updates, they're almost more powerful in terms of what they're covering than the OS X Mavericks fixes because you get a whole new Safari, a new WebKit, and loads of patches, including, I think, 40 CV vulnerabilities, something like that. Ten of them what I call cyber crooks dreams. So we're talking about remote code execution, elevation of privilege, ASLR bypass, PDF open and own, if you don't mind. That's one of the bugs that's been fixed. That'll have the jailbreakers dismayed. 
So even if you don't want the features, iOS 8 does feel like the kind of security fix that you don't want to pass up. Of course, that requires that you have a modern Apple device, and that's one of the things that um, comes back to bite us over and over again with Apple, which is no official announcement that uh, older iPad, older iPod Touch users, and I believe iPhone 4 and earlier users can't upgrade to iOS 8, which puts them back in the, are we perpetually vulnerable, or is Apple going to perhaps belatedly provide us with some iOS 7 fixes that's just a mystery again, and I'm not sure why it needs to be a mystery, and it doesn't set well with me. No, I think they should say iOS 7 is off the agenda, and sorry, it's going to get out of date. It might be ugly news to take if you've got an iPhone 4, but at least that clarity means that you won't be hanging on waiting like the poor old Snow Leopard users. So, so what do we do, right? Do I upgrade from iOS 7 to iOS 8 and, and risk perhaps incompatibility with apps or corporate stuff that might be important to me? Or do I stay on iOS 7 where I can use corporate apps knowing I'm vulnerable, which is super risky behavior, right? The horns of a dilemma, I think you would say. Uh, in my Naked Security article, I just said, we encourage you to update, but if you have corporate apps that are vital to your job, then we also advise you to check with IT first. Now, for some people, you know, if in a BYOD, bring your own device environment, it might be as simple as IT saying, look, if you go to iOS 8, that's great because there's more security, but there are some corporate apps that you won't be able to do on your iPhone anymore. You're going to have to get your laptop out of your bag, which maybe isn't such a hardship, in which case you might decide, I like the new features and I do want the new security, particularly if you're using that iPhone for personal stuff as well as work you know, where, where work and home life mix, there's an awful lot of information at the CyberCrook's disposal if you're not careful. I think that's good advice, uh, Paul. Um, now, another piece of advice, I guess, that we've given too often, so I'm not going to pretend to be ignorant, but this whole idea of, is it okay to share a password between a couple different websites? And we've seen a lot of arguments from naked security readers saying that, yes, it is okay, that, you know, when I write a comment for a story I read on the New York Times, and then I also want to comment on something in the um, Los Angeles Times, you know, why not? I mean, it's a throwaway account. What's the worst that can happen? Somebody's going to log in as me and post a comment. Um, so you wrote a story up asking our, our readers on Naked Security for their opinions. So what, what was the vibe? I phrased it as a rhetorical question. Is it really such a bad idea to use a password twice? And as far as I'm concerned, absolutely. We did not get the sort of reaction that I think we would of a year ago, going, oh man, you guys are fussing about nothing. Didn't get any comments or emails about people going, ah, oh, I don't care about throwaway accounts, which is a good sign. And so it seems that people who can only memorize one giant password and are prepared to do so are learning to use password managers, where the mega password unlocks the password manager and it does the job of different password for every account, good complexity, good randomness, and that phishing protection where you can't put the right password into the wrong web page. Um, so it looks as though things are getting better on the password front. Yeah, I would agree. And there's a lot of choices out there for people, depending on what individual concerns they may have. If you don't trust the cloud and don't want to use something like LastPass, maybe that uses the cloud, then there's things that allow you to store your password vault on a thumb drive or maybe on your own cloud or wherever you choose. So there are some of them that offer two factor, some of them offer different types of two factor. So if you have concerns about these types of tools, 
there's a pretty wide variety of options out there to choose from to figure out what fits your lifestyle or what addresses your concerns. One thing I would recommend to people is avoid the one built into your browser, um, even if you believe it's implemented well. We do know crooks like to target that in particular, um, so you're probably better off using something that's more of a plug-in or maybe on your mobile phone. The other great thing, Chester, in some of the comments on that article is that in the past, you know, you and I have battled with people about two-factor authentication because people have gone, oh, it's so inconvenient, it's such a hassle. Now it seems that the big complaint is, well, what happens if my phone gets stolen or my SIM melts and I can't get the magic SMS and I'm locked out forever? So it, it's more like they want to adopt it, but they're concerned about what if things go wrong rather than I couldn't be bothered. And quite a number of people coming out and saying, look, most of these two-factor authentication services let you print out recovery codes and you can lock them away and you use those if the worst happens. So again, it seems like we are making progress on getting people to want to secure their accounts better. Yeah, I think we are turning the corner and that's something that I would like to call upon Chat Chat listeners to help with. Of course, next Chat Chat will be the beginning of October and that is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. While it may not be official in every country in the world, um, it certainly is recognized in a lot of um, in particular, English-speaking countries, and I think everyone around the world can embrace it, even if it isn't something that their prime minister or their parliament has declared. So I, I call upon everyone to get out there and find a way to make a difference in your community, whether that's spending time with your family and friends and telling them how to choose a, a better password, whether that's um, putting on an event for kids and teaching them about privacy and social media. Whatever you can do, find some way to contribute and make a difference in October and help improve everybody else's security online. I agree absolutely, Chester. And, you know, to that small minority of people, and I can kind of see where they're coming from, who say, you know what, this is just public servants around the world spending the taxpayers' money on sounding important by stating the jolly obvious. Sometimes that's really, really, really important. And, you know, 40 million credit cards breached at Target, 56 million at Home Depot, a hundred million passwords stored ineptly by Adobe in that breach last year. If that's not proof that we can all make a mistake if we try hard enough, then I don't know what is. So let's all look at those things that should be jolly obvious, make sure we're doing them right, and then help our nearest and dearest to do them right as well. I couldn't agree more, and that's a great way to wrap up Sofa Security Chat Chat 166. As always, the latest security news is available over at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Uh, all of our podcasts are available on iTunes via RSS, over on TuneIn, or at soundcloud.com slash And until next time, stay secure.